Friends, the world around us can often seem so inconsistent with what we know about God and his purposes, can't it? As Christians, we feel it, but I would argue that even those who aren't Christians also feel it too. You might be listening today and you're not a Christian. You've heard about God and this Jesus person that Christians speak about, but you struggle to reconcile what you've heard with what you see. But you're not alone in this. There have been and will be many people who face this tension. It's this tension that leads to the big questions that humans ask in life, isn't it? If God is good, then why does fill-in-the-blank happen? Or if the Bible is true, then how come fill-in-the-blank is the way that it is? See, either it's your own personal circumstances or the latest atrocities you hear about when you turn on the news, what you've heard about the God we Christians profess doesn't seem to add up with what you've been experiencing. I get it. I don't know your specific circumstances or your specific questions, but I get it. And if you're listening today and you are a Christian, you might have questions too, more in fact, because you also face this tension. See, your questions might not begin with, if, the, if God is good or if the Bible is true, but rather, since God is good or since the Bible is true, then why are things the way that they are? Christian or not, life can be full of questions. The what's, the why's, the when's, the how's, and we want answers. Today, as we will soon see, the prophet Habakkuk had questions of his own too. And there is much we can learn from him about what to do with our questions. So, we're in the book of Habakkuk. It's the eighth book in the twelve. Habakkuk lived in the southern kingdom of Judah and was likely serving as a prophet around the same time as the more known prophet Jeremiah, as well as Zephaniah, who Lord willing will be hearing about next week. Out of the twelve, Habakkuk is perhaps the most unique in his contribution. See, the book is not primarily a message to God's people, nor to the nations, but rather it recounts the prophet's own prayers to God as he voices the concerns of the righteous that are left in the land. However, make no mistake, while the primary audience of the message in the book seems to be Habakkuk himself, as one representing the righteous, this inspired dialogue is recorded for God's people. The structure of the book is simple. Habakkuk questions, then God replies. Then Habakkuk questions again, and God replies. And finally, the book ends with a beautiful psalm. Do you remember the theme of the 12 that we've been mentioning over and over again? Sin, judgment, hope. Sin, judgment, hope. Well, in the backdrop of the people's persistent sin and God's pending judgment and a future promised hope, Habakkuk gives a voice to those who are seeking to be faithful to God in the midst of it all. The voice of one seeking to live faithfully in the midst of persistent sin, pending judgment, and promised hope. Doesn't that sound relevant for you today, Christian? I believe we can learn much from Habakkuk about living in the tensions and dealing with our questions. If I had to summarize the book, 
it would be that the faith of the righteous calls them to trust in God's purposes even when they don't understand His plans. The faith of the righteous calls them to trust in God's purposes even when they don't understand His plans. It is my hope today that we will let God's Word inform how we approach the hard questions by working through three lessons from Habakkuk. And if you're not a Christian, I pray that you would be challenged to consider this Jesus that we Christians speak of and see that He's the only one with the answers to life's questions. So as we look to Habakkuk to learn about what to do with our questions, the first thing we see is that we should wrestle honestly. Like I mentioned, the book is structured as two rounds of questions and answers and ends in a psalm. Let's take a closer look and see what Habakkuk was wrestling with. Look with me at chapter 1, verses 2 to 4. O Yahweh, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you look idly at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. As the book begins, we are thrusted right into the problem. Habakkuk is lamenting about the state of the southern kingdom of Judah. Commentators believe that this is around 609 BC, a time shortly after the death of one of the good kings, uh, King Josiah, when those who took his place basically plunged the kingdom back into wickedness. So as one who was still faithful to God and his word, Habakkuk was deeply affected by what he was seeing all around him. Violence, sinfulness, and injustice was everywhere, and worse yet, God seemed indifferent about it. In verse 2, we find out that he has been praying, but has received no reply. To paraphrase, it's like he's saying, I see what is going on all around me, and it's breaking my heart, so how can you be so quiet about all of this when you are holy and just? I don't understand God. When God finally speaks in response to Habakkuk's cry about violence and injustice, he promises judgment at the, hand, at the hands of the Chaldeans, who in this context are synonymous with the Babylonians, a rising superpower back then in the ancient Near East. God says to him in chapter 1, verses 5 to 11, uh, paraphrase, to paraphrase, you know those Chaldeans, those Babylonians who are known for their reputation for being violent and being a law to themselves? I'm going to use them to judge Judah. This leads to Habakkuk's second round of questions in chapter 1, verses 12 to chapter 2, verse 1. Whoa, 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 wait a minute, Habakkuk says. You are going to judge us with them? They don't even treat people like human beings, and they certainly don't acknowledge you. Their own God is their strength, and you're going to use them? I don't understand God. In both of these rounds of questions, we find that the prophet's faith forced him to wrestle honestly with what he had in front of him. 
There's this crazy notion that faith is a blind leap in the dark with no basis and goes against all reason. Friends, that's crazy. That's baloney. It's those who find their hope in anywhere else other than the God of the Bible that deal in blind faith. The faith the Christian professes has substance. It has an object. And that object is the God who has chosen to reveal himself both in his word and in his world. The God of the Bible doesn't say to you, good luck. He says, trust me. The substance of the Christian faith has been authenticated over and over again because it is a faith that is rooted in events in history. These things actually happened. But we'll get to that in a bit. For now, we know that the prophet's faith is what is propelling him to wrestle honestly because of the way he frames his questions and who he is directing his questions to. Look at how his questions begin. In chapter 1, verse 2, his, rec- his first recorded words are, O Lord, O Yahweh. And then in chapter 1, verse 12, he says, Are you not from everlasting, O Yahweh, my God, my Holy One? See, he calls on the divine name Yahweh, rich in theology and history. This is the same God who revealed himself to his people. The same God who delivered them out of Egypt. The same God who fought their battles in Canaan and gave them the land he had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, their forefathers. Habakkuk is aware of who God is. He's aware of what God has said. This is precisely why he doesn't understand what is going on. His faith is forcing him to question what he sees because the tension he feels is unmistakable. Habakkuk's questions were because of persistent sin and pending judgment. What are your deep burning questions about? Sometimes as Christians, there can be this perception that asking questions is wrong, that you aren't supposed to ask, you aren't supposed to wrestle with your faith or its implications because it's taken as a lack of faith. I don't believe that's true. I don't believe that's what the Bible teaches either. I think there are seasons where struggle and lament exist because of your faith. You don't hide your questions in the closet or sweep them under the rug. You wrestle with them, honestly. God isn't afraid of genuine questions. When you ask to understand, not to undermine or to argue against, there's a quote that I found helpful when thinking about this, whether you're a Christian or not. The author says this, he says, There has always been this important distinction between bitter cynicism and believing confrontation. One is a denial that refuses to believe. The other is a belief that refuses to deny. One makes assertions and will not stay for an answer. The other makes assertions and will not move until there is an answer. Habakkuk certainly wasn't afraid to ask, and neither should we be. His questions were informed by his faith. He knew that God is a holy God, and therefore he couldn't understand why he had left the people's wicked disregard for God and neighbor go unpunished. 
He knew that God is just, so he couldn't understand why he would use the Babylonians who were worse in Habakkuk's eyes to judge Judah. He was aware of God's word to the people through Moses, promising judgment for disobedience, where he says in Deuteronomy, Yahweh will bring a nation against you from far away, from the end of the earth, swooping down like the eagle, a nation whose language you do not understand, a hard-faced nation who shall not respect the old or show mercy to the young. He knew that God is faithful to his word. So he says in chapter 1, verse 12, O Yahweh, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. His faith helped him understand that this was the fulfillment of what God had already warned the people about. But he still wrestled with it. So in chapter 1, verse 17, he says, Is he, referring to the Babylonians, then to keep emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? As we learn from Habakkuk to wrestle honestly with our questions, we have to make sure that our questions are informed by our faith. Your fears and concerns can be as deep as the blackest night, but God is not afraid of the dark. He is the one who spoke and said, let there be light. He did this both in creation and in your salvation, Christian. He can surely do it again to your questions when you bring them to him. So what's the first lesson we learn from Habakkuk about what to do with our questions? We should wrestle honestly. What would it look like to wrestle honestly with your questions? Would it look like a season of fasting and prayer or a dedicated topical Bible study to see what God has to say about the issue you're facing, perhaps? I don't know. But whether it's racism or residential schools, COVID or communism, loneliness or loss, whatever your questions are, let his revealed purposes serve as the guardrails that guide you through his plans. Wrestle honestly with your questions through the lens of who God is and what he has said, because without his revealed purposes to inform your questions, all you might see is meaningless chaos and a hopeless mess. So after wrestling honestly, let's look at the second lesson from Habakkuk, which is to wait humbly. You know, when I first moved to Canada, I noticed something unique culturally that I wasn't used to. You've probably experienced this yourselves, or you've done it yourselves. I quickly noticed that people say, how are you, as a greeting like, hello. It sounds trivial to say out loud now, but a number of times I went to, I went to answer that question, ready to pour out my heart to this person, and he was already walking off. He doesn't really want to know how you are, Femi. Just nod and smile and be socially correct. <laughs> Might sound funny, but sometimes we can treat prayer in a similar way, can't we? As I worked on this sermon, I was increasingly convicted by this. We can pray many prayers, but there's often a temptation to treat God like a sounding wall or a wishing well. 
We speak all our words and we make all our requests, but we do not even take the time to listen to what he has to say in response. Nor are we diligent enough to track what he is doing in the midst of these requests. In Habakkuk, after he wrestles honestly with his questions before God, he waits. In chapter 1, verse 2, we see that Habakkuk was persistent in his prayers. In chapter 2, verse 1, after he had laid out all his questions, he says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. In our fast-paced society of instant networking, instant shopping, and instant noodles, the humility in waiting on God can feel frustrating, can't it? We're used to speed, and we feel entitled to it. But waiting humbly reminds us that we are not the ones in control. Habakkuk wrestles, and then he waits. But waiting on God for Habakkuk was not passive. It wasn't inaction. For him, it looked like persistent prayer. It looked like attentively trying to discern what God would say to him in response. See, he prayed, and then he waited for a reply because he expected that God would. And what was God's response? We see this in Habakkuk 2, verses 2 to 4. He says, And Yahweh answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come, it will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up, it is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. God says, wait. You know, here we find the essence of the prophetic writings we have in the Bible. One of the reasons the prophets wrote down their messages was so that when they came to pass, there would be no doubt about what God had said. For example, God says through the prophet Isaiah, The former things I declared of old, they went out from my mouth and I announced them. Then suddenly I did them and they came to pass. Because I know that you are obstinate, and your neck is an iron sinew, and your forehead brass, I declared them to you from old. Before they came to pass, I announced them to you, lest you should say, my idol did them, my carved image and my metal image commanded them. See, the written prophecies stood as testimonies to God. Also, the prophets would often speak two types of prophecy side by side, one that was soon to happen and the other that was further off. That way, when the closer prophecy was fulfilled, it would give assurance that the latter one would also be fulfilled. Here in Habakkuk, God reveals his plans to judge Judah through the Babylonians. However, he will not leave the Babylonians unpunished for their sins either, and so he promises to judge them too. So as judgment falls on Judah, Habakkuk and the people of God were supposed to be assured that judgment was also coming on the Babylonians. Write it down, God says. It isn't time yet, but it's coming. Wait for it. 
In the midst of this call to perseverance, God states the words that echo through the New Testament, the Reformation, and in our churches today. The righteous shall live by his faith. In contrast to the prideful Babylonians who, were, who will be destroyed, the righteous are called to persevere in their faith in the true God. That is what will save them from the pendant judgment and give them access to the promised hope. Remember what I said earlier about the Christian faith being authenticated and rooted in history? Well, Habakkuk, Isaiah, and Jeremiah all received a prophecy of Babylon's downfall with increasingly specific details about how it would come to be. Through history, we know that God's word indeed came to pass. In 586 BC, the southern kingdom of Judah was destroyed by Babylon and the people exiled as God had promised. But then in 539 BC, Babylon also fell to the Medo Persians, as God had said. See, the Christian faith is rooted in substance. These things actually happened as God said they would. God doesn't say to the Christian, good luck. He says, trust me. Friends, you might not be longing for judgment on your enemies right now. But what would waiting humbly on God look like for you in your circumstances? Would it look like persistently living with an illness day by day with the grace that he supplies, holding on to hope that he will one day heal you? Or would it look like faithfully working under a harsh and unreasonable supervisor because that's where you find yourself and you're leaning on God's provision in your circumstances? Or would it look like fighting for contentment in your singleness because you're trusting God's wisdom and timing? I don't know what it could look like for you, but I do know that those who wrestle honestly don't walk away without waiting for an answer. See, the faith of the righteous calls them to trust in God's purposes even when they don't understand His plans. They don't throw in the towel, they wrestle different analogies, and they wait. But let's be honest. The waiting can be painful, can't it? And it doesn't always mean you get the answer you expected either. Habakkuk certainly didn't expect the answer that he received. But for those who can be tempted to think that God will always work the way you expect, listen to this sobering quote from Paul Tripp. He says, many people in Western culture think the gospel means that God becomes a slave to our agenda, that he's responsible for giving us good marriages, nice jobs, and children who can be taken out to a restaurant without causing embarrassment. But the truth is, God will sometimes compromise the happiness of the moment in order to accomplish his plan. Why? For his glory to change what we live for. It's a little like looking at an unfinished jigsaw puzzle and comparing it to the picture on the back, isn't it? When we know God's overall purposes, we might not immediately see how each individual piece fits, but we see the big picture and we trust that somehow, some way, someday, in some way, all the pieces will lead to that. 
even when things don't seem to make sense or seem contrary to the big picture. A commentator rightly points out that like Abraham, the people of God are summoned to trust in Yahweh when circumstances conspire against such trust. This faith-driven worldview is what enables us to wait on God even as we wrestle with the tension and our questions in the meantime. So we are to wrestle honestly and wait humbly. The third and final lesson we will consider from Habakkuk today is is that we are to worship hopefully. We are to worship hopefully. After he receives a prophecy he doesn't understand and writes out, I mean, and cries out for a relief that would take years to come, Habakkuk the prophet turns into Habakkuk the psalmist as he pens this beautiful conclusion to the book that we see in chapter 3. Most of this psalm borrows largely from the poetic language of the rest of the Old Testament, celebrating God's saving work in history particularly in the exodus and the giving of the promised land. Habakkuk portrays God as the sovereign ruler who bends all of creation to his will and whose wrath on his enemies brings mercy and salvation on his people. It is clear in this psalm, God is in control. He always has been. He always will be. Even though our enemies are coming to ravage our land, God has promised to save. God is the one giving us into their hands for judgment in the first place, but he will remember his mercy. The book ends with one of the most striking confessions of confidence and trust in God in the whole Bible. He says in Habakkuk 3, verse 17 to 18, Though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit be on the vines. The produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in Yahweh. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. How can he say these words? Because he knew the one he was waiting on. Because God had declared to him, the righteous shall live by his faith. God wasn't saying to him, the Babylonians are coming for Judah, good luck. No, he was saying, trust me. Why is it so important to worship hopefully in the midst of our questions? Christian, I can give you a number of reasons, but we'll settle for three today. A child can be tempted to doubt his or her parents' love each time they say no to a request. Similarly, we can be tempted to make our relationship with God conditional on Him fulfilling our every whim and desire. But when we worship hopefully, we remind ourselves that whether or not the answer we are waiting for is what we expect. We expect God's revealed purposes are ever and always for our good. Here's another reason. If you have a pet, sometimes you can mistake their survival instincts for love and affection. The pet associates you with food and comfort, so when you want a cuddle and draw near to the pet, 
the pet draws near to you but just wants a treat. Now, while God claims ownership of his people, he doesn't want us as pets. Those who trust in him are welcomed into his family as sons and daughters. When we worship, hopefully, we examine and reorient our hearts to treasure God more than our requests and desires. And here's a third reason. You never know what God is doing. Listen to this quote. Habakkuk is thus instructed, he and his people, to turn his eyes away from his own little world and watch God at work on a wider canvas. Like us, the prophet had become preoccupied, if not obsessed, with his own situation. He could not lift himself above the daily events of his own circumstances. Because God seemed uh, to be inactive, indeed absent, he was being sucked into a downward spiral of doubt and despair. There are many instances in the Bible where God was already working even before the person was praying. In Habakkuk, God said he was already raising up the Babylonians as his instrument of judgment in response to Habakkuk's prayers. He was already moving kingdoms and changing history for his purposes even before Habakkuk knew. See, we worship hopefully because God is always doing a million things in the moment and almost always above and beyond what we could ever ask or imagine. So what would it look like to worship hopefully in your life today? I think that's something you actually have to wrestle honestly with. But friends... No matter what circumstances you are facing or what questions you may have, there is one question of ultimate significance for you right now. A question I would urge you not to leave unanswered. What is your final confidence? If all your loved ones were to die today, if all that you own was to be taken away, if all that you've built turned out to be sand and clay, what would your final confidence be? See, where you put your confidence is more important than you might realize. Because according to God's word in Habakkuk 2 verse 4, there are only two kinds of people. There's the proud one who puffs himself up and who makes himself his own God, whose end is destruction, and the righteous one who humbles himself, whose faith in God leads to life. See, Habakkuk's circumstances characterize the righteous just as much as the Babylonians characterize those who are opposed to God. This truth is so vital that it's quoted multiple times in the New Testament. If you think that you can work your way into God's good books... You're only revealing the pride in your heart that says, I believe I can do something so good that even God would be impressed. But we read in Galatians 3 that all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. 
None of your little works impresses God. He sees the pride in your heart. On the contrary, he calls you not to try and earn what he already freely gives. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation, for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Faith, friends, faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have all sinned. If we're honest with ourselves, we can at least admit that much. If we dig deeply enough, we will see that we live for ourselves and love ourselves one way or another and do not regard the God who has created us and to whom we owe all our devotion. And this God has promised in his word that there is a pendant judgment because of our sins. This time, it's not a foreign nation coming to ravage the land, but an eternity of separation from God where his mercy will not be remembered anymore, but only his wrath being poured out. But in sending his son, God shows that he has indeed seen all the brokenness in the world. Jesus Christ, truly God, truly man, stepped into human history, lived a life fully obedient to God's word, died on the cross to absorb the wrath of God for sin, and was raised up on the third day. All those who put their trust in him are given the future promised hope, eternal life. Is this hard for you to believe that you don't have to earn God's favor, only receive it by faith? Does it sound too good to be true for you? Well, to you, God says, look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you will not believe if told. God is already doing this. There are people here today that are witnesses to this very reality. If you do not have confidence in Jesus Christ today, then friend, you stand as his enemy. And God's purposes for his enemies is not salvation, but wrath and judgment. Please wrestle honestly about where you have your final confidence. Repent and believe in the good news of Jesus Christ. So friends, will you learn from Habakkuk about what to do with your questions? See, when we wrestle honestly, we address the tension between our understanding and what God is doing. When we wait humbly, we admit that we are not the ones in control. God is. And when we worship hopefully, we admonish ourselves not to lose sight of the glories of God's purposes in the moment. There will be many things we don't understand. There will be many things we can't fully make sense of in this life, but I pray that God will help us to cultivate a faith that calls us to trust in God's purposes, even when we don't understand his plans. Please pray with me.